Well, good morning. Uh, as you can see, a couple of things are different this morning. Uh, one, the windows. So we are in a process of renovation here. Um, and so we're a little bit of a work in progress at the moment. Uh, and two, I'm not Mike. Uh, so uh, he is off on a women's retreat. Uh, speaking at a women's retreat, not at attending one. Uh, I should be careful how I say that. Uh, but he is suffering for the Lord. He has uh, been waited on hand and foot at this place, been getting a massage, uh, been nice and pampered there. So he's getting a restful weekend, uh, which he has definitely earned and deserved. Uh, but this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you would open them up to Mark chapter 4. We're continuing on in our series. We've been going through the book of Mark, uh, the title called Invasion of the Lamb. And before we get into our text today, I wanted to do a little bit of a recap, because what typically happens, uh, and I love this about our church, I love that we go through books, uh, but typically once we start getting a bit further into the book, uh, we get tunnel vision, we kind of get lost in the weeds, uh, and feel like, man, when are we ever going to be through with Mark, right? Uh, so I wanted to back up a little bit and show uh, some of the things that are building up to chapter 4. Uh, so Mark chapter 1 starts uh, very quickly. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is very fast-paced, fast-moving. In fact, uh, one of my favorite theologians says that the Gospel of Mark is like the comic book gospel. It's full of action um, and very minimal teaching. Um, it's actually the, the Gospel with the least amount of Jesus' teachings in it. Uh, but Mark begins, and Jesus is on the move. And so he uh, gets baptized, and he starts proclaiming, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Uh, and this is the message. This, is, this would have gotten the attention of the Jews of his day, right? They were looking for this. They were expecting the kingdom of God to come. Uh, but something happens as he continues to pursue his ministry. Um, he does some things that they were expecting. So the first uh, thing that he does is he casts out a demon, right? So he is coming in power, and he is uh, defeating evil, which is what they were expecting, and he heals many, and crowds start to follow him. But then he starts to do some things that they didn't expect that cause a bit of controversy. So in chapter 2, uh, he heals a paralytic. But before he does that, he says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, the, this would have been very controversial. And what I mean by that is that there was only one place where forgiveness of sins was going to happen, and that was the temple. So Jesus is just telling this guy, hey, your sins are forgiven. Not only that, but he was claiming that he had the authority to do that. The only authority that could forgive sins was God. Because sin is ultimately an offense against God. So for Jesus to claim that he had that authority was pretty blasphemous, pretty controversial. So the, the religious leaders are suspicious of him right then and there. And then he moves on, and uh, he calls a disciple who maybe we would not have called. He calls Levi. And Levi is a tax collector. And what we know about tax collectors is they were not exactly the most popular people amongst their time period. Uh, think of a modern equivalent would be like a mob boss. Uh, so a, a tax collector would go throughout the town, and they would charge taxes against their own people. These taxes were Roman taxes, right? So they're not happy that they're having to pay Rome in the first place. So they're charging them. And then they're charging a bit more and cutting off the top. And that's how they would make their money. And this was putting people in poverty. They were losing their homes. Um, and so tax collectors were pretty unsavory characters. And Jesus calls one as his disciple. 
Um, and he gets this reputation as being this guy that hangs out with unsavory characters. And that's not what a Messiah is supposed to do. That's not what uh, they were expecting with the kingdom of God. And then lastly, in uh, chapter 3, he heals someone on the Sabbath. So, again, the Sabbath, they were pretty strict about it. You weren't supposed to do much activity. And so he goes and he heals someone. Uh, and this kind of shakes them up. They say, you can't do this, right? Uh, so we see from the very beginning that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom's coming, but it's not coming in a way you expect. And in chapter 4, he is going to take a breath, have a seat, and give us some teaching and explain kind of what's going on, the responses that he's getting. So we're going to start in chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in, uh, in on it, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So one of the um, things that Jesus liked to do whenever he taught was to teach in parables. So one of the things that we need to ask ourselves first is why would Jesus use this form? Why would he not just state plainly what he's doing? Uh, he seems to like to speak in parables. That's a predominant way that he teaches. Um, and so the, the reason many people have thought that he's done this uh, is because since he was bringing the kingdom in this unexpected way, the parable was the perfect form to kind of shake things up. So if we think about a parable, it's a lot like a political cartoon. Um, so political cartoons, they use symbols and animals that represent different things. Politicians, political parties, uh, and even countries. And what those political cartoons try to do is they try to make a statement. They try to awaken up our imagination and get us thinking. And they do this better than any headline ever could, any news headline. right? They're, they're able to, to stir something up within us. But, of course, that depends on if you get the symbols, uh, right? If you're in a foreign country and you read their political cartoons, uh, you probably won't get some of the stuff that's going on. And so this is, this is kind of uh, the reason why Jesus is using a parable. He wants some people to get it and some people not to get it because this, what he's saying is pretty controversial. Um, and again, we, we get this idea that whatever Jesus is saying needs to be hidden right now. It needs to be kept secret. Um, and it seems that Jesus really wants to fly under the radar of the religious leaders and the Roman authorities. Uh, something to note about Messiah movements, there were lots of people who claimed to be Messiah both before and after Jesus. And typically when Rome got wind of this, there was one response. They would kill the Messiah and all of his followers, or the would-be Messiah, right? They would put down the revolution because it would stir up a lot of trouble. So Jesus is not wanting that to happen. So he's, he's saying this in secret. Um, and he also seems to be a little bit mistrustful of the crowds. Uh, he seems to think that 
given the right circumstances, the crowds might turn on him. The crowds might forsake him. And we'll come to see as Mark plays out uh, the story that that actually does happen. Um, Okay, so let's take a look at the parable itself. We have a farmer who is sowing seeds. uh, And he sows four different seeds, or there are four different soils. Uh, The first one doesn't even take root. It's taken up by the bird, and it's, it's eaten. The second one does take root, but it's on this rocky soil. So there's not much depth. So that as soon as it sprouts up, and the sun kind of shines on it, it dies. The third actually does take root, but it's surrounded by thorns, and it gets choked out. And we'll come back to the successful seed in a minute. So what is Jesus trying to communicate? Well, uh, luckily for us, he actually gives us the interpretation right in the next passage, so that makes my job really easy. Um, So we're going to read, starting in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you not understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones uh, sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Okay, so uh, thank you, Jesus. That made it really easy. Um, Sermon's over. Go watch the Super Bowl. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so first, Jesus tells us that he purposely speaks in parables. This is telling us, this gives us the clue, right? He's purposely speaking in parables. Uh, and it seems to be saying something pretty harsh here, in order that people don't get it. So they don't turn and repent. And what he's doing is he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to write that next to uh, your Bibles there. So he's quoting Isaiah 6, which is this famous commissioning passage, where God famously says, Who shall go for us? And whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I. Right? Exactly. We all know this, right? It's on every, like, coffee mug. And, uh, here am I. Send me. Right? This great commissioning. Uh, but we usually don't read the verses that follow it, uh, which, are, uh, which give a very different tone. So God says, okay, go. I've dulled their ears. I've blinded their eyes so that seeing they may not perceive. And they may hear, but not understand. Go, Isaiah. I have given you uh, almost 100% assurance that you will fail. Go speak to people, and they're not going to listen to you. The worst commissioning ever. I would say, I'd take it back, right? I would prefer, if you were going to send me out there, that someone would listen. Uh, But this is not what God tells Isaiah. So why would Jesus use this? Um, And I think we have to go back to 
uh, his distrust of the crowds here. Uh, famously, in some other gospel passages, the crowds come to Jesus, and he essentially sends them away. And he says, you've just come to me because I just fed you. He had just done the, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. He says, you just want a full belly. You don't want to hear my words. And he, and he says something really weird. He says this crazy statement. He says, unless you eat me and drink me, you can't have me. And the crowd's like, uh, okay, crazy. Well, <clears throat> bye. Right? So he says this, and he, and he sends them away. Um, so he seems to be wanting the crowds to come for the word, not for necessarily the healing or for the food that he can give. Um, so this seems to be the, the purpose for the parables. And then he uh, so graciously gives us the interpretation of the different seeds. So the first soil, uh, the one where the bird comes, uh, he says that is Satan or evil forces. Right? The, it comes and it, the seed doesn't even get to be planted, but it's taken away. So um, what Mike was talking about last week, right? That Jesus is coming and God's kingdom is like this invasion. It's hostile territory, um, and we have to remember that, um, that it's, there's more than one key player. The second soil is the one that hears the word, but because of persecution, they fall away. And we have to realize that when Mark is probably writing this gospel, uh, there were current, uh, they were experiencing persecution. He's probably experiencing this in his own church. Um, and then the third, those who hear it, but eventually... They're, they're listening to something else, too. They're listening to the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, uh, status, desire for other things. And all of these reactions can be seen throughout Jesus' ministry. In these past three chapters, even, we see examples of the three different kinds of soil. Uh, the religious leaders, right? Those who reject Jesus outright are probably represented in this first soil. The crowd's probably the second. They follow him when things are good, when times are good. But once he starts revealing his mission as one of death, the crowds kind of <coughs> leave. They abandon him. And then the third soil, we have the famous passage with Jesus and the rich young ruler. Right? He comes to him and says, I've done everything. I've obeyed every law. Uh, what else do I need to do? He says, sell all your possessions and come follow me. And then he, Jesus says how hard it is for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. The, the deceitfulness of wealth is really a concern of Jesus's. Uh, so again, this, this tells us, Jesus is giving us the explanation for why people are reacting the way they are. But this parable is not just written for the original audience. It's also written for us. So what does this parable have to say for us today? Uh, and what I want to really focus on is this idea of the kingdom of God, or God's word, being compared to a seed. And I think that today there are three things that we can learn from this comparison, from this analogy. And the first is this. The kingdom of God operates on a different kind of power. The first thing we learn about the seed is that the kingdom of God operates on a different kind of power. Uh, so, again, right, Jesus is communicating this revolutionary idea. The kingdom of God is not coming in this, you know, blaze of glory, which is what they were expecting. Uh, but it's, it's compared to this seed. Um, now, if we think about a seed, this is not your typical symbol for power. If I want to talk about power, then I'm going to say the kingdom of God is like a hammer, right? Or a pickaxe, or a virus, something that just takes over and controls everything. But a little seed 
Uh, that does not speak of power, right? All I have to do is drop it and crush it, and it's gone. No more seed, goodbye, right? Um, so I wanted to share this story uh, because it actually talks about uh, oak trees. And since we live in Texas, right, uh, the, the primary thing that we see around us are oak trees. And everybody knows where the oak tree comes from, right? Acorn, I heard it somewhere. All right, yeah. Okay, so it comes from the acorn. This is, this is amazing, right? Everything that you need for these giant oak trees out here that, like, you know, demolish our sidewalks is in this tiny little acorn. Um, and so there was a guy named G. Campbell Morgan, and he visited a cemetery in Italy. Uh, and he noticed that in the center was this beautiful uh, marble slab and this oak tree in the middle of it. Uh, and he goes to investigate, and he finds out that a hundred years earlier, an acorn had fallen into the grave of this man who was buried there. And then through that process, slowly, right, the, the, it starts to grow. And once it broke ground, it split the marble slab in half, split it into two pieces. So that now at this day you have this giant oak tree and this decimated marble slab. Um, and I can just imagine, you know, a hundred years ago, I'm burying this guy and an acorn falls in it and I'm not thinking, oh man, no way, this is bad, right? The, you know, take cover, a seed has just been dropped, right? Nobody says that about a seed, but give it a hundred years and it is broken marble, right? This, so, so the power of the kingdom is like this. It looks like this weak thing that you could take out if you just crushed it, right? But give it time, give it some attention, and it's going to grow up to be a pretty unstoppable force. Uh, and that's pretty encouraging for me as I think about the kingdom uh, and what Christ did for us. Uh, I teach over at Houston Christian and teach New Testament and apologetics. And we've been talking about the incarnation. And what I figure out is that most of my students really think about Jesus as this God with skin on, right? Uh, so he's this great lordly figure who's walking around, omniscient as a baby. He's omniscient and sees, you know, his mother. Um, and, but when I start pressing them on his full humanity, the fact that Jesus became human, uh, they start to freak out a little bit. So I say, okay, guys, I want you to think about this. The God of the universe had a dirty diaper. Okay, right? And they're like, oh, this is gross. I don't want to think about that. Okay, I was like, all right. The God of the universe probably had pimples. Like, struggled with acne like you and I do. And they're like, oh, I don't really. You know, it's like, the, to them, it's like you're desecrating this image for me, right? But the, the crazy paradoxical claim of the gospel is that the God of the universe became human, fully, fully human. It's not like he cheated, right? He experienced everything we experienced in our suffering. Um, he came in weakness, and through that weakness, somehow conquers death, evil, and sin. This is very counterintuitive. Okay, so the second thing that we learn uh, when we think about God's word as a seed... Uh, is that this, the gospel has to take root in our lives. What we learn from this story is that the gospel has to take root in our lives. Uh, let me rephrase it like this. I've been thinking about this question. Uh, I heard a pastor say it, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Uh, he said, have we allowed the gospel to so invade and control our life that we can trust our instincts? 
that we can trust our instincts, that whatever I instinctively do is gospel-saturated, have we so allowed the gospel to invade and control us that I can begin to actually trust my instincts? I can tell you I'm not there yet, right? My instinct, whenever somebody cuts me off on the road, is not gospel-saturated. It is, uh, it's not that at all. Uh, so, right, but the, this is the point. It's supposed to take root inside of us. Um, and the gospel, this is how it works. It changes you from the inside out. It has this transformative power. It's organic. It's not mechanical. And what I mean by that is we don't first obey and then expect to get rewards. We come to know the God who has graciously accepted us. And then when we realize that kind of love, we just kind of want to obey. right? In Romans it says God's kindness leads us to repentance. Because we're just so overwhelmed by his grace and love that it's just like, gosh, I just want to... I just want to give you everything because you've given me everything. Um, so it's basic reciprocity that we see here. Um, now, again, the second thing that this tells us is that it's going to take a really long time for that to happen. If anybody has ever tried to uh, garden and grow something from a seed, uh, you have to be a really patient person. You have to be willing to wait for that little tiny green sprout to come up from the dirt and then for the whole flower to come. It's a very long process, which again I take comfort in, uh, because if this is the Christian life, it tells me that growth is slow and gradual. It tells me that my journey with Christ is a long one, and it's probably not going to ever finish. Uh, And I'm just going to continue to learn and think uh, and grow. And it's also a really gentle process. If you think of gardening, right? You're not hacking away at something. It's, It's this tiny little seed that that gently kind of grows and takes over. Um, And this is how Jesus tends to work. When he comes, he says, listen, hear, understand. Jesus didn't come and say, you know, turn and burn, right? Repent, do this or else. He's trying to to woo us, to win us over uh, with his parables. And I'm always struck by that. Uh, So this means that God's kingdom is going to require patience and trust. Trust that God is not done working in us. Trust that it's happening, uh, even if it's slow, and that's okay. Um, you know, as a Bible teacher, you might think this comes naturally since I, you know, talk about the gospel all the time, but it, uh, it doesn't, right? When I, when I come and my students, you know, it's Bible class and half of them don't have their Bibles, I'm like, really? Really? Come on, you know, and I, I'll uh, get frustrated and, and forget the gospel. And it's typically when I come home at the end of the day uh, and talk to Zach, my husband, And then I'm reminded, right? I'm reminded of the grace that Jesus has showed me. And the more I think about the gospel, and the more I think about his grace, the more gracious and loving I tend to be. Um, And I'm less, you know, get less frustrated when half of my students forget their Bible. Even if I send them an email reminder the day before. Um, So, the third and final thing that that we can learn, um, that we can learn from from the seed, is that God's kingdom vastly exceeds our expectations. It vastly exceeds our expectations. Uh, So we haven't talked about the one seed that is successful, and that's what I want to do to close us out. Um, So even though the majority of the seeds, three out of the four, they're not successful, uh, which could sound really depressing, right? Like three out of the four do not even bear any fruit. But the one that does, the harvest is said to be 30 60 and 100 fold. 
and you and I are not farmers, so this just sounds like numbers to us. Uh, but what you should know is that a farmer would expect a harvest of about 15-fold, and that was good. That was like the best they could ever possibly imagine. So it, to an agrarian society, uh, this would have been amazing. This would have been miraculous. This would have been supernatural. There's no way, uh, either then or now, that this kind of harvest would come from one seed. It's impossible. So what Jesus here is saying is that there is some supernatural things going on. God is, is going to take, as he always does, the faithfulness of the few, and he is going to bring that to bear fruit in ways that we could not possibly imagine. Uh, and this, once again, is very, very encouraging for me because um, I, I look out at the world, right, and, you know, we, we claim that Jesus is king, that God's kingdom is here, and yet I see so much hate and so much injustice, and I just keep on thinking, okay, God, you said you're king, you said you're in charge. It doesn't really look like it, right? Uh, but the power of this parable is that it just takes one tiny seed. That's all God needs. Uh, this is the story of Scripture. God comes to Abraham in Genesis. He comes to an old, barren couple and says, Guess what? Through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Right? And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I would pick somebody else. Uh, got a plan B. These people can't have kids, and you want them to become this great big family. Maybe backup plan. Uh, but this is what he does. Right? He takes the faithfulness of a few and eventually creates this blessing for all of creation. And that, uh, as believers, as we come to celebrate the, the crucified and risen one, that should encourage us that our, our labor is not in vain. Um, right? our, our church is small. Uh, but, but what we see throughout the gospel is that science really doesn't, it doesn't concern Jesus. Right? He can take a small group of people, a small faithful few, and turn that into blessings. Um, and so to close, I want to read uh, a passage from 1 Corinthians. If you know much about the uh, church in Corinth, you will learn pretty quickly that they are messed up. They have lots of issues. Um, and so this is just evidence that the early church didn't have it all together. Just like us, which is, again, comforting. I take that as comfort. Um, you had a, a guy who was dating a stepmom, and the church said, yeah, it's cool, it's great. And uh, Paul's like, whoa, no, this is not okay. Right? You had uh, believers who were taking each other to court. They were suing each other. Um, and then apparently there was a really big disparity between the rich and the poor. And so communion was originally a meal. Uh, and what this church was doing is they were seating the wealthy in one room and seating the poor in another and they were serving communion to the rich, and then they would give the leftovers, if there were any leftovers, to the poor in their congregation. So Paul is, he's got a lot of work with these uh, Corinthians, but amazingly, he gives this encouragement to them at the end of the letter, uh, which I think, again, is, can be taken as encouragement for us. So 1 Corinthians 15, 58, says it like this. Therefore, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Uh, that is a prayer. That is something that I have converted into a prayer for me. Knowing that our labor is not in vain. <clears throat> that God can take a seed, uh, a faithful few, 
and turn that into uh, the building blocks for the kingdom. And as we continue to go through Mark, uh, we're going to see this this idea unpacked even more. Um, And we know that as we read, we can celebrate uh, because Jesus, who is the God of the universe, who took on flesh, right, the Son, the Son of the Father came uh, and did not abandon creation. He didn't write us off. But out of love and grace, he came and invaded and took back what is rightfully his. Um, So may we hold this truth in our hearts today uh, and as we go out throughout the week. May this be a reminder to us when we get discouraged. If you all pray with me.